We're going to look at all of Revelation chapter 12 this afternoon, all 17 verses, and so I'm going to read that for you now. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God, and so may we receive it from him as such. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations With a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war 
on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your holy word. And we know that you have given it that we might be built up and encouraged and challenged. And so we pray that you would use your word by your spirit to that end now. Reveal to us the glory of your son in his conquering of the dragon who rages against your people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I think one of the greatest tragedies of our modern day is that we don't know our history. We are an ahistoric culture. And so as a result of not knowing where we've come from and understanding that, we really have no understanding of our present moment. And because of that, we really don't know how we should proceed and behave ourselves in the future. And so I would tell you that because we're an ahistoric culture, we're a culture that is adrift. It's lost. No bearing or sense of where we are. And you can see the ramifications of that all around you. But you see, the Lord knows how important it is for his people to understand their history, doesn't he? How many times in the Old Testament can you think of where the Lord tells Israel, remember, remember. You've forgotten, remember. And so what we have here in Revelation chapter 12 is a reminder of history that affects us. And it's our history as the people of God, the history between the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we've seen this starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Genesis 3.15, the fall happens. And God says there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so what do you see right out of the gate? You see the seed of the serpent, Cain, strike down and kill the seed of the woman, Abel. You see this with Noah versus the rest of the world. Noah being the seed of the woman, the rest of the world being the seed of the serpent. You see this with Jacob and Esau, Moses versus Pharaoh, and on and on. And what the Lord wants us to understand as we turn our eyes and our attention to Revelation chapter 12 is that we are in conflict with a defeated enemy. He's never been successful in destroying the people of God, whether that be under the Old Testament. And now a decisive blow has been dealt him in Christ, in Christ's death and resurrection. And so he's been cast down from his place, we'll see and we'll look at. And he's not going to be successful in destroying us as the new covenant people of God either, brothers and sisters. And so we need to be familiar, aware, and rejoice in this, our history that is revealed to us. That though the serpent, the dragon rages against us, Satan, the people of God, he is a defeated enemy. And so we're going to look at that from three different angles in Revelation chapter 12. That is the theme 
Satan's been defeated. He's never been able to conquer the people of God. And we're going to see that reality from three different angles. It's like three different vantage points. They do this in movies now a lot, right? You see one scene from this angle, and it's the same scene again from a different angle. That's what John is doing here. He's driving home this point. And so the first angle that we'll look at is in verses 1 through 6. And what we're going to see there is really an emphasis on the people of God under the Old Testament until the promised Messiah is born, and then the dragon being unsuccessful in destroying the Messiah, going after the people of God, and yet God protecting them. That's the first angle. Second angle we're going to look at is in verses 7 through 12. And this is the fascinating thing about the second angle. It's really the heavenly counterpart to angle number one. In other words, what Christ accomplishes in verses one through six here on earth in his earthly ministry has immediate effects in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realms. And so John represents that to us symbolically in verses 7 through 12, in this conflict between Michael and his angels and Satan, the dragon, and his angels. And then thirdly, finally, the third angle that we'll look at is in verses 13 through 17, where we see that though Satan knows he's defeated, he rages all the more against the people of God, and yet God again and again and again delivers them and protects them. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope as you look at the world around you and feel this battle that we're in, reaching a fever pitch, you're encouraged to understand because of what Jesus has done and because of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, we are engaged in a battle against a defeated enemy. So don't ever be tempted to give up. Don't ever be tempted to despair because we fight a defeated enemy. So let's look first then at the first angle, if you will, in verses 1 through 6. And we'll begin just by looking at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The story, the symbolism begins where many fairy tales, this isn't a fairy tale, but don't often many fairy tales begin with a beautiful woman? Well, here we have a beautiful woman. She's radiant. She reflects the light of the sun and the moon and the stars. And so we're to be captivated by her beauty. And who is this woman? It's the people of God. How do we know it's the people of God? Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, John loves to steal things from the Old Testament. If you go back there, you see that that's Joseph's dream. And who's described as the sun and the moon and the stars in Joseph's dreams? It's Jacob, it's Rachel, his wife, and his 12 sons. And so we have the people of God here. Now, the focus in verses 1 through 6 is going to be on the people of God in the Old Testament. But all throughout this chapter, chapter 12, it represents both the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and the New Testament saints. And so we start with this beautiful woman who is beautiful. Why? Not because she has some source of beauty in and of herself, but it's because she reflects the beauty and radiance and glory of her Savior, the Lord himself. Now, as if she couldn't be any more beautiful, look at verse 2. She was pregnant. Something precious and sweet and glorious about a pregnant woman, isn't there? She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony 
of giving birth. So now what's happening? Well, she's in labor. She's about to give birth. By the way, all throughout Isaiah's prophecy, the people of God are represented as being a woman in labor. And yet, unfortunately, she only gives birth to wind, doesn't she? She doesn't actually give birth to the Messiah. Well, this is real labor pains that are going to actually lead to the birth of the Messiah. And yet, notice that she is in agony. Literally, in the Greek, that word there can be translated torture. And so what I think is being represented here is the people of God, the Jews, in that intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, where they suffered greatly at the hands of their enemies. And so the time is drawing near for the Messiah to be born. The birth pains are reaching a fever pitch, and yet she's being tortured by her enemies. Who's doing the torturing? Look at verse 3. Here's a horrific symbol in contradistinction to this beautiful pregnant woman. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. So we see the two main players in this conflict, don't we? Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, the serpent himself trying to attack the woman, the seed of the woman. And he's red. That's significant. The color red has already been used in the book of Revelation. And red symbolizes bloodshed. And so he's out to destroy her. And how will he attempt to destroy her? Well, he's got these ten horns. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, horns represent what? Kingdoms. And the number ten in the book of Revelation represents completeness or fullness. And so what's the symbolism here? The dragon has the kingdoms of men, evil, wicked kingdoms in the palm of his hands, and he's able to use them to persecute and bring suffering upon God's people. And he's got these seven heads with seven crowns. What's he trying to claim? Sovereignty. Wrongly. Doesn't he do this with Jesus? Doesn't he tempt Jesus the third time and say, hey, you don't have to go to the cross? Bow down and worship me, and I will give you power over all the nations. Satan doesn't have the authority to do that. And so here we have a false ruler claiming false sovereignty over all things. It's what's represented by these seven heads and these seven diadems. But he is, excuse the language, hell-bent on destroying God's people. And we see that in verse 4. Look at verse 4 there. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Anybody recognize this language of the serpent's tail, the dragon's tail swiping down a third of the stars? If you've been going to deeper with Chad through Daniel, you know. Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. Antiochus Epiphanes is prophesied to being wiping out a third of the people of God. Why are they, the people of God, represented as stars? Well, that's not a foreign concept. Isn't Abraham told your offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky? Our home is in heaven with the Lord. And so the people of God are represented as stars here, and Satan's given authority by God to kill them. To wipe them out. Antiochus Epiphanes, by the way, he killed, was it 40,000 Jews in a span of three days? Horrific stuff. 
And so we're seeing the dragon pursuing the woman and attempting to destroy her. Now, he's not just trying to destroy the people of God. He's trying to destroy the seed of the woman, the promised seed who would crush his head. Look at the second half of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. What a horrific, horrific image. We've got some pregnant women in here this afternoon. Imagine as they're in the pains of birthing this child, there is a dragon ready to snap them up and destroy them with one strike of their jaws. It's a horrific image, even for an abortion-ridden culture like ours. It's disgusting, and yet he's ready. Satan is ready to destroy the promised Messiah. Don't we see this once Jesus is born? Doesn't Jesus have people trying to kill him from his youngest days? Remember Herod? All the young boys in Judea, two and under, kill him. It's the serpent. It's the dragon trying to kill the promised Messiah. Or what about when Christ is tempted in the wilderness? Satan's the serpent, is trying to get the second Adam to fall, to destroy him. Or what about through Jesus' ministry? How many times do we read that the crowds want to kill him? And yet it wasn't his time, so he slips away. And yet... Christ does eventually die on the cross, doesn't he? And it seems from the world's vantage point like Satan has crushed him. And yet that's not what has happened at all. Look at verse 5 with me and we'll see that that's not the case. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here we have the whole earthly ministry of Jesus summarized in one sentence. He's born, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, becomes incarnate, lives the life that we've failed to, fulfilling all righteousness, dies on the cross, and just when it seems like Satan has won, what happens? He's raised from the dead, and then he ascends to the Father's right hand, sitting on the place where he rightly rules and reigns. Satan's unsuccessful in his attempts to destroy the Messiah. And so we see this glorious reality that God delivers his people again and again and again. And yet, what's the dragon's response then to the woman? Look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So what do we have here? Well, now we're transitioning. The Christ child's been born. He ascended. So now the woman represents who? The new covenant community of God. In Christ, she is the new Israel because Jesus is true Israel. And now she's in the wilderness being attacked by her enemies, and yet the Lord is providing for her, nourishing her through word and sacrament, and she is nourished for 1,260 days. That number, 1,260, it's already come up before in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, we'll see it come up again in Revelation chapter 13 verse 5. And all this represents is that time period between Christ's ascension and when he comes back again, And the ministry that the church has been left to do by Jesus and how she'll be attacked by her enemies. If you do the math on that and convert it to years, it's about three and a half years. 
That should be significant to you because that's roughly the time that Jesus was here doing his earthly ministry. And now he's left his church to continue to do, Luke says, all that he began to do and teach. And so that's what we see represented here. We see this reality that though the dragon has always been raging against the people of God, he's been unsuccessful in destroying her or her seed, the Messiah. Now, as we transition to the second angle in verses 7 through 12, again, just a reminder, this is now showing us the counterpart in heaven of of what happened here on earth. As a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, there are massive implications spiritually in the heavenlies. And so we're going to see that symbolically represented to us here in this second angle in verses 7 through 12. So look at verse 7 with me. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So what is going on here? What is happening? Well, the easiest way for me to explain this to you, we've already seen in Revelation, particularly those first five chapters, it's not uncommon in this vision for angels to represent the people of God. We've already seen that time and time again. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 12 and 10 in particular, what you see is that Michael represents the people of God, Israel. And so it's not hard for us to see then that who Michael represents here is Christ, the true Israel. What Jesus is accomplishing on earth in verses 1 through 6 in his death and resurrection and ascension, Michael is representing symbolically what the import of that is in the heavenly places. And so what do we have? We have this battle. Christ is doing battle with the dragon and his angels, his demons. Are they successful or do they fail? Look at verse 8. But he, that being the dragon and his angels, was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the angels and Satan are defeated in battle, and they've lost their place. They've lost their place because of Christ's death and resurrection. What place have they lost? What exactly does that look like? Well, look at verse 9 with me. In verse 9 we read, And the great dragon was thrown down from heaven. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Got to love a little poetic justice, right? And that's what Satan is getting here, because just as he unjustly cast down a third of God's people, the stars from the heavens, now he himself, in Christ's death and resurrection, is cast down as well. But we're given a better picture here of who the dragon is. He's called that ancient serpent. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 14. That ancient serpent who was in the garden. And he's described as the devil and Satan, which basically translates to slanderer or adversary. And he's a deceiver of the whole world. Isn't this what Satan's been doing from the very beginning? What do we see him doing in the garden as soon as he shows up? He slanders God. You know, he doesn't want you to eat from the fruit of that tree because he knows that once you do, you're going to be just like him. He's slandering God's character. 
God's withholding something good from you. And then he comes and he deceives Eve, convinces her, tempts her, you should really eat of this fruit. And so she does. And thus the world is, as it is today, a mess. So he's deceiving, he's slandering, but we get a little bit more clarity on what he was doing in heaven because he was allowed a place there in God's courtroom, wasn't he? You can see this throughout the Old Testament. And so what is he doing there? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 to see what he was doing in heaven. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come because of his death and resurrection. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So what was Satan doing in the heavenlies before Christ's death and resurrection? He was accusing the people of God. Don't we see this throughout the Old Testament, by the way? Satan's out taking a stroll upon the earth, and he comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, where have you been, Satan? He knows where he's been. I've been looking for someone to wreck. What about Job? Satan goes right into accusing and slandering God and Job. Oh, he's just faithful to you covenantally because you're so kind to him. You remove all that kindness, he'll turn on you like that. He's accusing Job. He's accusing slandering God. Go read Zechariah chapter 3. And those first few verses there, what do we have? We have Joshua standing as the high priest and Satan at his right hand accusing him, saying, he can't serve as high priest. His clothes are dirty. He's a sinner. And so what are we being shown here? Satan was allowed a place in heaven to accuse the people of God. Now we have to ask the question, why? Why was he allowed that place? Because you see, even though Satan's accusations fell short, In the sense that, even under the Old Testament, the merits of all that Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension were applied to the Old Testament saints by grace through faith. Salvation's always been the same way, by grace through faith in the Messiah. Even though that was true, the promised one had not yet come and in time and space and history, actually accomplished that salvation. He hadn't actually atoned for sins yet. And so there's Satan, almost as if to add to the drama of, man, we're waiting for Emmanuel, God with us to come. Satan stands and says, God, how can you let him off the hook? How can you not crush David right now for his sins against you and Bathsheba and Uriah and their unborn child? How dare you, God? Who are you? He's accusing. He's slandering the brothers. You see, now that Jesus has come, the mouth of the accuser has been shut. Because for centuries, it's as if the wrath of God had been stored up and built up and built up and built out and then just dumped on Christ on the cross. All the sins, all the wrath that was deserved for all the elect of God, past, present, and future, it's been paid for. It has been accomplished. And so his mouth is shut, and he's cast down from heaven. You see, this is what Christ accomplishes in his death and his resurrection. And if I could just add as a pastoral note, don't try to take Satan's job now. That job position's closed. 
Don't accuse yourself. Don't allow the flesh and the world and the devil to get in your ear and don't join them. Look to Christ. Know that your sins have been paid for. The righteousness of God has been put on display, right? Because what does Paul say in Romans 3.25? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But now that the Lamb of God has come who takes away the sins of the world, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What better thing do you have to cleanse your conscience as guilty as you are than the blood of Christ? And so the mouth of the accuser is shut and no one, no one, not even you, can bring a charge against God's elect. The strong man is bound. The ruler of this world has been cast out. And so heaven rejoices as we're going to see in just a little bit. Now, don't misunderstand This is a decisive defeat of Satan, but it's not the final defeat of Satan. The final death blow is yet to come. Now, by the way, I forgot to mention, I think that the loud voices in heaven that are singing, those are the saints. Those are the glorified saints. Why do I say that? Because they say, the accuser of our brothers. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that the angels would be calling saints brothers. And so it's glorified saints singing this about other saints, saying our brothers. Now, they don't just sing about Christ's conquering the serpent, the dragon. They also sing about our conquering the serpent and the dragon. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. What glorious news. How have we conquered the dragon? How have we conquered that ancient serpent? Brothers and sisters, there's two ways. In the first way, you have not done a doggone thing. Zero. Nothing. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow with his blood by dying on the cross. You simply, by God's grace, receive it By the gift of faith that he gives you when he regenerates your dead heart. You've already conquered Satan. Because you've been washed clean in the blood of the lamb who was slain for you. So that's the first way we conquer. And the second way that we conquer is by the word of our testimony. Because we love not our lives even to death. The second way that we conquer is by persevering. By enduring. And the Lord is the one who does this. What does Jesus say? He says, I've got you in the palm of my hand. And no one can take you out of my hand. No one can take you out of the Father's hand. You will endure. You will persevere. No matter how bad things get. And in so doing, you will conquer against the serpent and against the dragon. So do you see how this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3.15, by the way? Because yes, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. But by believing in Jesus and enduring until the end, we also, as the offspring of the woman in Christ, crush the head of the serpent. And by persevering until the end. And so we have a partial fulfillment in our own lives of that promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. 
What should our response to this be? Well, look at the response of the saints in heaven. Look at verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. They just erupt in praise over this incredible historic moment and what has been accomplished. Brothers and sisters, does your heart sing when you hear of these realities? When we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, does your heart well up at memories of who you once were and now who you are in Christ and how the grace of God has just been lavished upon you? Do you rejoice when we gather together to sing and all throughout the week when you're with your family and when you're in the Word and when you're praying? Joy should mark our hearts in response to this incredible good news. And so that's what we see heaven doing. The glorified saints saying, Oh, you heavens and all who dwell in them, rejoice over what the Lamb has done. Now, it's not all good news, is it? They don't just sing about how believers should rejoice. But what should unbelievers do? How should the earth dwellers respond to Satan being cast down? Look at the second half of verse 12. But woe to you, O earth. And see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. So this isn't for you believers who dwell on earth. No, this is for the unbelievers who dwell on earth. You better prepare. Satan has lost his place in the heavens. He's cast down to earth. And so now he is going to wreak havoc. He is going to try to destroy God's beautiful creation. He's going to do everything that he can in his final death throes to destroy God's creation as much as he can. So you look at the world and you wonder, like, why are things so bad? Why is the church persecuted more than she ever has in her history? More Christians martyred. Why is this happening? It's not because Satan knows he's going to win. It's the exact opposite. He's been defeated. He's been cast down. He knows his time is short. And he rages. He rages. And we see that as we transition to the third angle, if you will. The third angle in verses 13 through 17 on the same reality of how vociferous the attacks of our enemy are and yet how God protects us and he's been defeated in Christ. We see that now as he's cast down to earth, he turns all his attention on the new covenant saints. So let's look there at verse 13 to see this. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satan's been cast down. He knows his time is short. Does he give up? Nope. He pursues the woman. And why does he hate the woman? This has always been true, by the way. Why does he hate the woman so much? God's people, God's covenant community, Because she gave birth to the child. She gave birth to the promised Messiah. And he hates Christ. And so he hates us. Isn't that what Jesus says? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he hates the people of God. And so he's pursuing her. Literally, he is persecuting the woman who gave birth to the male child. And it's all because of our association with Christ. And yet notice how God cares for his church. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent. 
into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That time, times, and half a time is from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. It's the same time period that we looked at in verse 6, 1,260 days. It's that time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. And we have this Exodus language. Again, the church is new Israel. She's in the wilderness. And how did the Lord say he would protect Israel under the Old Testament? He said, I will protect you as a mother eagle puts her wings over her chicks. And that's what we're being told here. The church has the protection of God, is nourished by Christ through word and sacrament, by the Spirit. And she's protected by God. And Satan knows this. Does he give up? No. He tries to bring more dangers upon the church. Look at verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Again, what do we have here? Exodus language. What stands between the people of God and the promised land home as they're exiting Egypt, going to the promised land? A body of water, a flood of waters, the Red Sea. And this language that John uses here, he's trying to make our minds go to Psalm 144, where David is praying for the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. They've poured out deception and lies and persecution like a flood. And so David says in Psalm 144, Lord, save me. Lord, protect me. Lord, deliver me. Just go look at the history of the church. Just go look at what's happening to most of the churches in the rest of the world, brothers and sisters. What is Satan doing? He's trying to attack the church from without and within with false doctrine. You don't have to look far to find that here in America. And then he's physically attacking the churches through those ten horns, the kingdoms of men, persecuting God's people. And yet, how does God deliver them? From these flood waters. Look at verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. This is again Exodus language. The waters are parted, the church is protected so that she doesn't apostatize when she's threatened with death. She's faithful even to the point of death. And though she may give in to lies for a period of time, which she doesn't want to do, but she's susceptible to, isn't she? Aren't we? She repents of that. She doesn't persist in that. She hates those lies and turns away from them once she realizes them. And so what do we have? We have the Lord delivering his people as faithfully as he did to Israel during her wilderness wanderings. The Lord will do for his church, his new covenant community as well. So Satan seeing that, does he give up? Nope. The battle goes on. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. He's been thwarted at every turn. Under the Old Testament, with the Messiah. He's lost his place in the heavenlies through Christ's death and resurrection. He can't accuse us. Now we can't destroy the church. And so he's furious with the woman. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, just another symbol for the church, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Brothers and sisters, is the point clear enough? Who are we fighting? 
Why does Satan rage? Because lo, his doom is sure. One little word from the Christ when he returns will fell him. So let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you understand your place in history? Do you see how encouraging this is? Meditate on this. Reflect on this. Rejoice in this. And be faithful to your king by God's grace as you behold the glory of your Savior who's conquered the dragon. He's done that in his death and resurrection. And when he comes back again, the final death blow will be dealt. And so we're waiting for that day. Don't turn to the right or the left until Christ returns, knowing that he will keep you because we're battling an enemy who's already been defeated. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this reminder of where we are in this story that you have unfolding. Thank you for representing it symbolically to us so beautifully. Pray it would impact our hearts and minds and that by your Spirit you would use your word to keep us faithful, even unto death, to the praise of your glory. We can't do this in and of ourselves, so do it in our midst, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.